all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. As we've been doing for the past couple of weeks, we'll be taking your questions about COVID-19 as well as your general questions about health and wellness. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-672. 7464. You can send me an email at fit at mpbonline.org or you can interact with me over on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. Good morning, Josie. How is your Monday going so far? Well, my Monday's pretty good. Of course, my kids decided to get in an argument with themselves about 30 seconds before we went on the air. So, <laughs> so Perf- my Monday's great. Perfect timing. <laughs> Yes. Now, I saw from your Facebook page that uh, you have uh, some new uh, residents of your uh, area out there behind your dock, some new uh, geese, if I remember correctly. Yes, absolutely. So um, I lovingly refer to my backyard as the Bidwell Bayou. Um, and my husband says, you know, that's not really what that is. And so he's just a party pooper. But yeah, that's what I call it. And we've got, we're lucky to have so many different animals in the backyard. We live out at the reservoir. And so um, yesterday there was a a mama goose and a daddy goose that we had named previously Veronica and Vincent. And they had four little fluffy baby geese uh, that were learning how to swim in our backyard. So that was a fun thing to, to see and for our boys to get to see as well. And a great way to reduce some of the stress that we're all feeling in these this time. Absolutely. To just kind of unplug and just focus on the fact that nature is continuing all around us and babies are being born and, you know, things things are still happening that don't revolve around a, a keyboard or a computer screen. All right. I got a lot of great questions from your Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie, but do want to start off with one question that my colleague Michelle McAdoo was asking uh, right before we came on the air. And that is, if you would, maybe we hear a lot about telemedicine and how important it can be and that it's useful. But if you would maybe tell about some of the advantages through telemedicine, but also are there maybe some drawbacks, some things that you can't replace with telemedicine? Absolutely. So that's actually the way I'm practicing currently. Uh, Lifestyle medicine works really well by uh, telemedicine because the majority of lifestyle medicine visits are, are counseling visits where we're working through behavior change and that type of stuff. And so those types of visits translate very well to telemedicine. But And before I really got into telemedicine, I had some thoughts about, you know, what can we actually do in terms of physical exam and that kind of stuff. And it it really depends. So there are some um, clinics that are set up for telemedicine. One of my old clinics was as well that had 
kind of a virtual stethoscope as well as equipment that we look in people's ears with and all of that. And that type of telemedicine is a type that's usually um, delivered between two clinics. Let's say we have a specialist here in Jackson and we have a patient maybe in the Delta uh, that doesn't have access to this specialist. The specialist can see that patient virtually, as long as there's someone in that clinic that can kind of move the stethoscope, the virtual stethoscope around and, and, and insert the um, otoscope into the ear canal, that kind of stuff. So there's that kind of telemedicine. And then there's uh, some of the things that we're doing now, which involve either telephone visits or telephone video visits. Okay. And what you can accomplish um, in either one of those varies, of course, in what methodology you're using. So if we're doing just a telephone visit, obviously we can't see someone and we can't assess things uh, from that, from a physical perspective. Um, so they work well uh, for counseling type visits. And I usually only recommend telephone visits on a, an established patient so that we've already seen that patient before, had a physical exam, that kind of stuff. And then the audiovisual type of telemedicine that we have, um, we, UMC has an app called UMC2U. Um, they, um, they're using other clinics, use things like Zoom um, or Doximity, uh, Jabber, those types of, of platforms to deliver uh, the, the video telemedicine. And so we can get a lot of physical exam done that way, right? I can see how someone is sitting, what their posture is. Um, their respiratory effort. I can look at a rash on their skin. I can look at, you know, their coloring or any swelling in their uh, hands and feet, those types of things. So there's a lot that can be done and a lot of, especially routine clinic visits or s relatively simple acute care visits like sinus infections and, and that kind of stuff can be handled very well through telemedicine. All right. Uh, let's uh, start by uh, some of the questions uh, from your Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. And this first one asks, are there some supplements that someone might take to help minimize the risk of contracting COVID-19? That's a great one and one that I get a lot. So I've gotten this question more than one time. And just like we've talked about on this show before, I would prefer that you get your nutrients from food. Right. And so really the, the buzzwords that we've seen around COVID are things like vitamin C, vitamin D and zinc. Right. And so um, those actually they do have a place in the treatment of COVID-19. A lot of times um, I won't say a lot of times, but sometimes our uh, hospitalized patients that are entering into sepsis and those types of things will actually need IV vitamin C. Um, but the average person doesn't necessarily need to take supplements for that. If you have a good, healthy diet, I just usually recommend increasing your vitamin and mineral-rich foods, which are your plant foods, right? So berries or peppers, those types of things have tons of vitamin C in them already, and so adding those to the diet work well. Um, I've seen a lot of folks that are taking very large doses of vitamin C supplements. And, you know, the, the caveat to that is uh, high dose vitamin C causes diarrhea. And so we have to be careful that we then don't, you know, get dehydrated from diarrhea from the supplement. So as always, I would prefer for you to get your nutrients from food. Um, if you felt like you needed a supplement, I would just do a good multivitamin. 
um, there instead of trying to uh, take very large doses of various supplements. Unless you have a deficiency. Let me throw that in there because so I take a, B, a B12 and a vitamin D because I'm vegan. And we know those two um, vitamins are lower in the vegan diet. So those are the two supplements that I take. Um, is there any danger in, in taking too many, say, over-the-counter vitamins or supplements? It, it can be, depending on what it is. So some things um, like vitamin E can actually thin the blood a little bit. So if you are on... Um, let's say a blood thinner already, a Coumadin or a Plavix or something like that, then we would want to know. That's why I always recommend if you're going to add a supplement into your diet that you have that conversation with your healthcare provider just to make sure that nothing is going to interact with any medication that you ha are already on or any medical condition that you may have and that we're always purchasing those supplements from a reputable source. I've talked about that little USP seal on um, supplements that is a voluntary kind of certification that looks at potency and what's in it is actually what it says is in it is actually what's in it um, to make sure that you're getting, you know, good quality product. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at UMMC. We've been answering your questions about COVID-19 as well as general health and wellness questions for the past couple of weeks, and we will continue to do that today. If you have a question, you can send it to me in a variety of ways. You can email us at fit at mpbonline.org. You can shoot me a message over on my Facebook page, which you guys are doing this morning. That's great. Um, Healthy Habits with Josie. And then you can also give us a call if you want to be on the air. Our number is a one eight seven seven mpb ring All right. And I would, you know, <clears throat> we're all thinking about uh, coronavirus and COVID-19, and that's we've been getting a lot of good questions on there. But I would encourage folks, if you're listening and have some, you know, questions about healthy eating or exercise or trying to stay fit, please feel free to give us a call. That's uh, Josie's uh, uh, sweet spot there, and I know she'd love to take your questions. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. All right. Here's an interesting one from your Facebook page. Uh, and what I would like for you to do to set it up is to tell us what contract tracing is. And then we have a question yeah. about that. Okay. So contract uh, tracing is 
part of public, a public health initiative, and it, it happens in, a, in varieties of outbreaks, right? And so what it takes is looking at an infected individual and literally tracing their contacts or where they've been and who they've been in contact with. Um, you see it happen um, with foodborne illnesses sometimes. You know, we'll, um, somebody will have, you know, gastroenteritis or vomiting diarrhea from, from eating somewhere. And then through tracing where they went and looking at where maybe other people that have similar symptoms went, then you can kind of identify where, where that particular illness came from. And so the same thing with, with COVID-19, we'll have someone who's infected and we're trying to pinpoint where perhaps they acquired it um, by tracing their contacts and their kind of points of movement there. So that's kind of the, the quick and dirty on contact tracing. And it, ta- and it takes a lot of manpower to, to do that. You can imagine trying to track um, where people have been and who they've been in contact, especially with a disease that has such a long incubation period, right? So two to 14 days from the time of exposure to the time of symptom development. You know, if we have to think back on where we've been, everywhere we've been, everyone we've been in contact with for 14 days prior to this uh, kind of quarantine at home, that would have been a hard, hard thing to come up with. And I know this is a sort of a relatively new uh, development in in uh, dealing with the, the pandemic. Do we have enough information, enough data to kind of get a sense of where people are contracting COVID-19? Is it someone they know or maybe from a random occurrence at a grocery store or, or uh, takeout or that sort of thing? So I have not seen any um, thing for the U.S. yet. Where, where there's a graphic out for that. I do have a graphic from that's looking at the Icelandic population, which has been a, a, a pretty good model that people have been looking at in terms of, of patterns across the world. And when we look at it, it, it changed depending on the time. So when the outbreak first started, the contact tracing showed that the vast majority of people were um, coming into contact and becoming infected from travel. And then that was followed with um, uh, work. So travel and work were the, were the two big ones there. And then as social distancing was put into place and um, restrictions on, on travel became commonplace, then that shifted and became more family as, as the source of transmission or kind of this unknown where they haven't figured out exactly where the uh, infection was uh, originated, so to speak. So that's what we know so far. And obviously, as we do more of that, we'll be able to get uh, more data and then be able to maybe just spot some trends or do a little bit better analysis of, of what we're what we're finding out. Absolutely. I mean, when we think about Mississippi, our first case was March 11th. And so we're, you know, we're only about six weeks into this. And so our data is relatively young and will continue to get more robust as we go along. And then a lot of the analysis that people are are wanting to see in terms of, you know, public release of information, some of those are going to happen or can only happen after really the outbreak is over with so that we can fully say, you know, this is what a recovery rate is, that, that kind of thing. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit with Dr. Josie Bidwell. If you have a question for Josie this morning, you could send an email to fit at mpbonline.org or give us a call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's 877 877- 
672-7464. The phone lines are open, so if you have a call, if you have a question, uh, go ahead and call. We'll get you right on the air. Also, always, we'd like to remind you of Josie's Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. Lots of good information on there and a way for you to get in touch with her as well. So I think today the Safer at Home uh uh, place uh, restrictions guidelines uh, from the governor go into effect. Josie, from a medical standpoint, what would your advice be to someone as we enter this a little bit of loosening of some of the restrictions when it comes to uh, the COVID nineteen and the coronavirus? It w- I would still recommend that people think about what is essential to 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 for them to do right. So different things have opened back up and that that's fine, but we've still got to kind of use, use our brain and say, do I really need, need to go here? Right. Um, the grocery store has remained open. That's an essential service, pharmacies, those kinds of things. Um, and then there are some retail stores that are open and I'm not saying don't go, but think about why you might need to go. Like, do you really need something from that store Or are you just bored and ready to get out of the house? And so if it's just bored and ready to get out of the house, you know, I would ask that you kind of refrain from that if you can, um, because it's not necessary. Um, If you do choose to go out to some of these places, please remember the social distancing guidelines, staying at least six feet away from individuals, wear that mask, that cloth mask. And then, you know, don't touch on your face and those types of things and make sure that you wash your hands or you use an alcohol-based hand sanitizer after visiting one of those places so that we're not spreading things around. You know, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if it's the board and trying to get out of the house, maybe get out and uh, walk around the block, you know, get out and get yeah. some fresh air. That way you're, you're you know, kind of relieving the, the steer craziness, but also getting a little bit of exercise in, and that never hurts. Oh, absolutely. You know, I've said this whole time outside is not closed. And so, you know, get out, um, sit on your back porch, go for a walk in the neighborhood, you know, those kinds of things. But, you know, again, if we're going into stores, just make sure that you really have a need to go in there and that you're not going every day, you know, kind of plan and think about what you need to get from those stores that so that you're still going, you know, once a week um, to do things that you need uh, to get out. All right. It looks like uh, several callers answered our plea to call in this morning. So we've got some phone calls <laughs> to get to. Uh, we'll start first. Uh, Sue has called in from Beaumont. Sue, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Good morning. I'd like to ask a question that may not be uh, apropos to the what you're speaking about, but I, I just wonder why the United States government didn't have a plan in place for something like this. Why, why, is, why is the United States always reactive instead of proactive and having a plan in place to handle things like this when it comes up because i think this germ warfare is not the only thing that's going to come our way surely sooner or later there'll be some other virus to come along that's going to do the same wreak the same havoc on the country so why aren't we prepared when something like that happens well, you know, unfortunately, that's a question that I can't really answer uh, for a variety of reasons. One, I'm not privy to what we're actually prepared for in terms of knowing what the national preparedness guidelines are. Um, you know, there and there are some things that we can never be prepared enough for. Um, you know, you can do do your best in learning from things that have happened in the past and setting in um, policies and procedures that will, you know, help to mitigate the spread of things like this. But 
you know, that's really kind of all I can say about that because that one's above my pay grade. All right, Sue, we appreciate the call. And Josie, I would say, ask this, too, as maybe sort of a tangential follow-up. And that's why one of the reasons why we want to gather so much data as we can about COVID-19 and the coronavirus. So maybe in the future, we can learn some lessons and prepare better for the next one. Absolutely. You know, we, we saw that, you know, from Katrina, right, that we we learned what we didn't know or what we, you know, that we didn't know to have in place. And so now it's, it's, we largely think that we over overreact to things when we talk about hurricanes, because we just gotten better at preparing for them and, and taking the necessary precautions. And as this progresses, and we gather more information about, um, you know, how this respiratory pathogen spreads, then we can better prepare to, um, you know, handle another wave of this or an entirely new uh, pathogen in the future. All right. Next up on the line, we have uh, Paul, who's in Brandon. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air with us. Well, thank you very much. I was just curious to know, uh, it's a, a white, a white Caucasian, I'm 78 years old. Is there a site or someplace I can go uh, online or whatever to, to know exactly uh, what the, uh, what kind of physical exercise activities should I be able to do? Um, I, I, I'd like to know uh, if, I, if I'm, in, I'm in very good health, but I'd like to know uh, if there's some, some way I can find out what I absolutely should be able to do. And if I can't, then, you know, what I'm going to do mm-hmm. about it. Absolutely. So the U.S. Physical Activity Guidelines were just updated last year, and they have a specific category for older adults. And so it'll talk about different modifications for things in there, as well as the um, amount of physical activity that you should be getting. It is uh, for the, as far as amount, the same as for younger adults. So 150 minutes of moderate intensity um, aerobic activity. So things like walking, swimming, biking, uh, dancing, those types of things. And then two days of muscle strengthening or, and bone strengthening. And that can be body weight exercises. So um, lunges or sit-ups or um, squats, those types of things. We just always want to make sure that if we do have, you know, particular joint issues or heart issues or even metabolic issues like blood sugar issues, that we're tailoring those activities to not put extra strain on that particular area. Um, But you can absolutely start with the U.S. Physical Activity Guideline. You can just Google that. Just say U.S. Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans. And it's a, um, a website as well as a PDF document that you can open up and search by your age uh, you can go to the older adult section and be able to find examples there as well as recommendations. You can also okay. go to the Southern Remedy website, um, so mpbonline.org slash Southern Remedy. Go to the Healthy Living tab and then to the Fitness Prescription, and we have a walking program there that would be great, as well as some at-home body weight exercises um, for you there as well. The first one you mentioned, forgive me, please. Uh, uh-huh. Other than other than Southern Remedy, what was the site mm-hmm. called? What was that, what was it? Just U.S. Physical Activity Recommendations for Adults. Physical activities mm-hmm. for adults. Yep. 
I'll, and it should have, it should, I'll, yeah. I'll check into that and uh, thank you very, very much for all that you've contributed to all of us. Appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. Thank you so much for giving us a call today. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hey, this is Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour, the arts interview show on Think Radio. Each week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and we have been taking your questions and comments today about COVID-19, as well as kind of your general health and wellness questions, which we've had a couple of those uh, this morning, which are my favorite. If you want to give us a question, uh, have a question or give us a comment, our number is one mpb ring You can interact with me over on Facebook at Healthy Habits with Josie, as well as sending us an email to fit at mpbonline.org. I think we've got a couple callers on the line, so we're going to go over to Utica and talk with Renee this morning. Hello, Renee. Hi. Uh, Hi. I have two questions. One of them is, uh, what does obesity, how does obesity affect you with COVID-19? And the other one, elementary, but I'm asking it anyway. <laughs> Wait, look, if I have virus and bacteria on my hand and I touch something, you know, don't have something, does it mean the virus has gone from my hand? Is it free of the virus? Gotcha. Those are two really good ones. Let's start with that one. So, um, no, it doesn't mean it's gone from your hands. Uh, so viral particles are super, super, super tiny and, and bacteria. And so you'll have more than one or two of those on your hand usually. And so if you touch uh, a doorknob, a light switch, whatever, then you may transfer a few of those, but you'll still have some on your hands as well that you could then touch another doorknob with and spread some more over there. So the only way to, to get them off of you is to do hand hygiene. So washing your hands uh, with soap and water or using an alcohol-based uh, hand sanitizer on that one. Now, in terms of obesity, so it, it, it varies. Um, usually obesity is not an isolated condition. So there's usually something else associated with it, maybe a high blood pressure or a diabetes or heart disease, something like that. So when we see statistics about um, obesity, uh, yes, that plays a role, but it may also be one of these other cardiometabolic issues that is playing a role in, in this as well. And so it'll take a little bit more sophisticated statistical analysis to see whether obesity is um, on its own contributing to poor outcomes and death. Um, but we do have to think about 
um, ventilating someone who is heavy, depending on what their weight is, you know, gravity, just, you know, laying on your back and having to breathe against a heavier chest can make expanding your lungs harder. And so there are different positioning techniques that we can do to help with that sort of thing. It's one of the reasons um, why um, when we have someone who has uh, breathing difficulties, we kind of sit them up in the bed a little bit. That takes some of the gravitational pull off of, of the chest. So you know, obesity is absolutely, we know, emerging as one of these risk factors for poor outcomes, but what it contributes in and of itself, um, apart from the associated heart and, you know, uh, diabetes issues, not quite sure yet. All right, Renee, we really appreciate that call. Lex, uh, next we've got online, Georgia, who's called in from Jackson. Georgia, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Thank you so much for taking my call. I have a couple of points to make. The African-American community is already a vulnerable community overall. And what has happened with us dying more than the average citizens, I have a question about the history of the health of African-Americans, which is scientifically proven that in the 60s, we were the healthiest people in the United States, and now we are the poorest of health in health. And I don't know healthy people. In America, we have one main disease. We've never really been diseased, even on the continent of Africa. The Ghanaian, the Canadian women, immune system fought off the AIDS virus in the 80s when it first came out. But in the community, my question is, is there any way that the blame for diseases can be eliminated when it comes to any kind of uh, health health problem? Because diabetes is not our disease. It's, it's we, most of our diseases we get from somewhere else. And But we're, it's like we are the weakest, we are the most diseased. Please, can you speak to that? Hmm. It's a very interesting question. So I don't 100% fully understand the question, but I think what we're saying is, can we speak to the fact that that African Americans are not weaker or, uh, you know, a sicklier population? And so what yes. what's going on in terms of why we have more uh, African-American cases and African-American deaths. Is that kind of hitting at some of, yes, some of it? Ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Good. So absolutely. There's nothing, you know, genetically that makes, uh, African-Americans sicker or, um, uh, more likely to, to get something. Uh, a lot of it has to do with, we, we know that there are what we call health disparities, meaning that certain populations of individuals are, um, affected by diseases at a higher rate. Um, and, and race can be one of those. Socioeconomic status can be another. There's lots of different ways that we break things down that can be broken down to look at populations of people that are affected by disease at higher rates. And so we, you know, we do know from statistics that, especially for things like heart disease and high blood pressure and diabetes, that, that African-Americans have a bigger share or are affected a lot more by that. 
Now, there can be a variety of reasons for why things like that happen. Access to care is often listed as one of those things. And then utilization of the healthcare system as well. And so those are things that I think we have to look at going forward is how do we make sure that we provide good quality health care um, and good quality access to you know, people regardless of race or ethnicity so that we're able to diagnose things earlier and, or prevent them in, in their entirety. Um, so that's kind of where we are right there on that. But absolutely, African-Americans are not weaker or sicker. All right, Georgia, thanks for your call. Next, we're going to go on to Francis, who's called in from Natchez. Francis, you're on the air with us. Go ahead. Yes, sir. I got this question. Uh, it's in mention to the coronavirus. Uh, I consider myself a, a very optimistic person, but I'm also realistic. With less than 1%, let's say 2% of the total population of this country that have been tested for this disease, and 98% hadn't been tested. And people can go about with no signs of it and, you know, give it to other people. My question is, with these businesses and states opening up to business as usual, have there been any plans implemented to, you know, deal with the situation if it doesn't work? If opening back up doesn't work, if we see spikes? Yeah, if we see spikes, uh, my, my, my question is, you know, have plans been implemented or set in place to take care of this? So there is a, a phase or tier system to reopening things. And so different um, metrics have to be met before you can progress to the next tier. If, it mo- if you move to the, or a state or a county, whatever, moves to the next tier of reopening or relaxing of um, the social distancing measures or, or whatever, and you see a resultant bump in cases, then it actually goes back to the, the phase or the tier before um, and kind of go back to the drawing board and think about, you know, how we address those types of things there. So I feel like a broken record, but it's one of those things that we just don't know fully yet because it's it's so new and novel. But, you know, hopefully, you know, we're looking at, at Europe and at Asia that is, you know, several weeks to months ahead of us. And as they start to relax some of their measures, are we seeing resultant spikes in that? And I think that's something that we'll know in the next, you know, week to two weeks. All right. Another good call. Thanks uh, for that, Francis. Uh, now let's get uh, Tom on the line from Natchez. Go ahead, Tom. Hi. You're on the air. Hello. Uh, Hello. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've, I've had the virus and uh, I think I had it, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago. And, but okay. now I'm feeling better, and um, I'm I'm not feeling. I'm just really weak, and mm-hmm. I, I really don't know what to do. Okay, so you so when you say weak, just kind of not a ton of energy, but not really no chest pain, no lots of shortness of breath, anything like that. Um, uh, a, a little shortness of breath, but uh. You know, I I got run over about ten years ago. It, it crushed my lungs, so mm-hmm. I've been I've had shortness of breath ever since then. Anyway, okay. 
every morning. So nothing above your baseline shortness of breath? I don't think so. Okay. It, it was about a week ago, but now it's not. So. Okay. So it's getting better. And do you feel like your energy level is getting better at all? A little. Okay. Then I would say it's probably just going to take a little time. You know, we've seen that a lot of folks have reported um, kind of lasting and lingering fatigue and low energy levels. So, you know, making sure that we're eating a well-balanced diet and that we're drinking enough and staying appropriately hydrated. And then we're, you know, we're getting up and doing some things, but not to the point of exhaustion. You know, maybe it's just we're getting out, walking to the mailbox and walking back those kinds of things. Um, If it doesn't continue to get better, I would say, you know, over this coming week, then that's something that, you know, you might want to contact your healthcare provider about to make sure that there's nothing else lingering going on. But as long as symptoms are continuing to get better, um, it's, it's probably going to just continue over the next, you know, week or two week to get better there. But if not, or if symptoms return, you know, if you start to get a cough or fever or anything like that, that could be either a uh, reactivation of the illness or a secondary bacterial infection, something like that, and would warrant much sooner treatment. Okay. Well, I live alone. Nobody lives here. I've been mm-hmm. here for three weeks alone or four weeks. So yeah, there's no way for it to get contracted to anybody else. Uh, so I just stay at home. Yeah, unfortunately, that's kind of where we are, is staying at home right now. Um, And, you know, but like I said earlier, outside is not closed. So getting outside for the fresh air, for sunlight, all of those kinds of things. Because, you know, we can also have, you know, emotional issues that can be affecting our energy levels. You know, it's it's a hard time right now. And a lot of people are dealing with situational anxiety and depression that can also affect, you know, how we feel. And so just getting outside and for a change of scenery and especially some exposure to that sunlight can really help with some of those things. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, and we've been answering a lot of questions today about COVID-19, as well as your health and wellness questions and how to stay healthy and fit. 
We're in the last segment of the show, so now is the time if you have a burning question to get it in. Our number is one eight seven seven mpb ring As always, you can email us at fit at mpbonline.org, or you can interact with me over on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. If you send me a question today and we don't get a chance to get to it today, I will certainly add it to the list for next week's show. All right, Josie, a couple questions from the Facebook page. This is the first one, or the next one, I guess, uh, says, can you use blood from a deceased person for antibody plasma treatment? It's a, a good question. I had to, to do some thinking about it. I also did a little digging in the, uh, in the science uh, articles to see if there was anything about it, and there wasn't anything. And the reason why I feel that there's not anything is for a variety of reasons. So, um, convalescent plasma is what we're talking about, right? The use of someone who has convalesced or gotten better from the infection, then taking their antibody-rich um, plasma and using it to treat someone who is currently infected. And so, so if someone has, dis- has died from COVID-19, then they would not have convalesced, right? They would not have gotten better. So that would be um, why that wouldn't, wouldn't work there. If perhaps they had COVID, got better, and then died for, for some other reason, it would still be very difficult to do that. Because at the moment of um, death, when the heart stops beating, different things are going to start to happen to the blood. Obviously, it's not being pumped around as well. It's going to start to clot, and then things are going to start to kind of settle out of it. So it wouldn't be usable at that point either. So all that to say, nope, don't think so. All right. Uh, here's one. It's interesting. Uh, how is COVID-19 different than the flu? Oh, I get this one all the time. And I actually just did an update for uh, nurses about this as well. And there's a, a, lots of different ways that it's different. I think one of the reasons why the parallel gets drawn between influenza and COVID-19 so much is the fact that there's a lot of similarities. Right? They're both viruses. Right. So it means antibiotics don't work for them. They're both largely respiratory in nature um, and they're both uh, present with kind of similar symptoms. Right. Fever, cough, shortness of breath, uh, muscle aches, fatigue, those kinds of things. So it's kind of easy to, to compare the two because they on the surface look similar, right? They're even transmitted in very similar ways. You know, droplet, respiratory droplet, as well as fomite, which is an object that has some virus on it that you then touch and touch your um, eyes or nose or mouth, those kinds of things. So the light switches and the doorknobs and those kinds of things that we've talked about. But there are some important differences as well. And, you know, one of those differences is the fact that we don't really have treatment for COVID-19. So with influenza, we've got the vaccine that, you know, definitely cuts down on the transmission of uh, seasonal influenza, as well as you've got things like Tamiflu and Zofluza, which while are not cures for um influenza, they can make symptoms less severe in some folks if started soon enough. So, you know, that we're kind of ahead of the game there with with influenza and being able to mitigate the spread and, you know, lessen the symptoms in some folks, whereas we don't have that for COVID-19 yet. Some of the other things that we look at in terms of um, the differences is uh, the rate of transmission, right? And so we, there's lots of different terms out there that we use for calculating rate of transmission, but one of them is, is called R naught, and that's really 
how quickly one person can spread the infection, right? Or how many people one person can infect. And so when we look at um, seasonal influenza, one infected person with that can infect up to about one and a half people, right? When we look at COVID-19, of course, the, the data changes from day to day, the stats as we learn more about it, but it's a sitting at about a two to two and a half. So one person can infect more people with COVID than with uh, seasonal influenza. And then we look at how many days it takes for that to happen. And it's, it's pretty comparable between those two things. But if we just look at that, that R number that I was talking about, we just have a much broader spread in being able to infect people than with seasonal influenza. I like to think of that um, R naught number kind of like in terms of a forest fire, right? So the harder the wind blows in a forest fire, the farther the fire spreads. The bigger the R number, the, the farther it spreads or the more people it spreads to. And then the second is your mortality, right? How many people die? And so I've seen a lot of comparisons between mortality uh, with COVID and mortality with influenza. Um, you know, the caveat to COVID is that we don't know what the final mortality rate is for COVID-19 because we're not over this, this outbreak. Um, so really what we have is a case fatality rate, the number of identified cases um, and the number of deaths associated with those identified cases, knowing that the the case number is not actually as is um it's kind of falsely low just because we haven't tested everyone yet so we don't know what the true number of cases is but if we look at seasonal influenza um you've got about 24,000 to 62,000 deaths over the time period between October and April right so um, 6 months there right and sitting here with COVID, we're, you know, a March, you know, some places the end of February um, on that and having uh, more, more deaths than that, you know, in the, in the 50,000 range there. So when we look at those case fatality rates uh, for seasonal influenza, you're, you've got about a 0.1 to 0.2% with COVID, depending on whether you're looking at global data or U.S. data or Mississippi data, it varies a little bit, um, but Mississippi is sitting at about a 3.7% um, case fatality rate based off of this morning's numbers that I looked at. So it just spreads a little bit faster, and working on the, the numbers that we have now, it does look like it is uh, deadlier than seasonal influenza. All right, uh, Josie, got about a minute left, and I think on the show last week I mentioned that I'd been adding some romaine lettuce to my homemade sandwiches to get a little crunch to it, but also add some vegetables to my diet. Maybe what's one quick tip on how we can add some more veggies now that we're probably cooking at home a little bit more than we used to? Absolutely. Just think about using up what you have in your fridge. You know, if you've just got one carrot hanging out in there or a handful of of uh, greens that maybe are almost time to, to go away. Think about making a soup. You chop that carrot up, throw that handful of greens in, and you've automatically bumped up 
um, the nutrition and the the fiber of that particular meal. And just think about ways you can kind of slide things in that you wouldn't normally think about. You know, if you're making tacos, then what's an extra veggie you can throw on top of that? Let's throw some corn on top instead of just having the meat. Or let's replace half the meat with black beans or pinto beans and get an extra fiber boost from that. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks for listening to the Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit Podcast. If you have a question, you can email fit at mpbonline.org or leave a comment on my Facebook page, Healthy Habits with Josie. For ongoing information on staying healthy and fit, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org.